This morning, in these historical chapters in the Bible, in Exodus, we get to learn of the character and the nature of God. As we shall see, Israel is in deep, deep trouble. What will become of her hinges now on God's character and God's nature and nothing else. So let's begin by reading from Exodus 32. Please keep your Bible open from 32. As you can see, we did not read it, and we'll be reading a lot of it as we go through the sermon together. I'll read from 32, verse 1 to verse 6. 32, verse 1. Okay, please help one another to flip and find 32, verse 1, if you can't find it. 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next, mo- the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What do you think of what just happened there? Let me try to put this incident in perspective for you. Here in Samaria, we just celebrated two great weddings in the past two weeks. Daniel and Marian's, Adam and Shirley's. Many of us here witnessed their vows in the weddings. The couple gave firm and loud yeses, and they were declared husband and wife. It was beautiful, wasn't it? Imagine now the unthinkable, unthinkable. On their very first night of honeymoon, right after the reception, back in the hotel rooms, as the husband comes out of the shower, he finds his wife sleeping with another man on the wedding bed. It is gross. It is revolting. It is disgusting, isn't it? The very thought of it probably makes you angry with me for painting such a sickening picture. But friends, that was how sickening the situation was in Exodus 32. That is how revolting Israel's action was. For just not too long ago, Israel was suffering as slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God for help, and God responded. Through Moses, God rescued them out of Egypt, protected them against Pharaoh. In the desert, the Israelites grumbled against God. They grumbled for water, God gave them sweet water. They grumbled for food, God gave them bread and meat, delicious meat. God cared for them as a tireless eagle, cared for the young under her wings. God treated Israel as his own personal, special treasure. And two weeks ago in chapter 24, which was read to us in the New Testament reading, we saw the climax of this relationship, which is the wedding. 
God revealed himself to Israel at Mount Sinai and sealed a covenant with them. Through a solemn blood ritual, Israel was inexorably bounded to Yahweh. With one voice, Israelite gladly and repeatedly affirmed, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In essence, the Israelites made their marriage vows. They beheld God, they ate and they drank with Him. They enjoyed exclusive, intimate fellowship with God. That was where they were at. And this intimate relationship was meant to continue, as we saw last week. For God planned to dwell in their midst. He began to give them detailed instructions on how to make that happen by building the tabernacle that we saw last week. But just then, the unthinkable of Exodus 32 happened. Most of, here, most of us here would be very familiar with the episode of the golden calf. So be very careful, for familiarity breeds contempt. The very first time readers of Exodus would have been shell-shocked by what happened. How drastically things suddenly change. Just a brief mention of Moses' delay coming down from the mountain, and then bam, suddenly, we find ourselves caught in an event that could threaten to undo God's entire plan. To undo what has just taken place in the last 31 chapters. Think about all that God has done for Israel that we have seen in the past many weeks, in the past 31 chapters. And yet, this is what Israel does in return. God was the one who bore them on eagles' wings, we saw, brought them out of Egypt to himself, and now in 32, to a handmade golden calf. Israel said, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Back in 24, Israel made a covenant with God at the altar. They offered burn and peace offerings to him. They ate and drank with God. And now in 32, they offer burn and peace offerings to the golden calf. They ate and drank and rose up and played. The word play in Hebrew suggests sex play, meaning drunken orgies with one another. I said at the beginning of the sermon that these chapters reveal to us the character of God, and we will see that in the coming verses. But right here, we must pause and consider what it reveals to us about human beings. For remember, what we witness here is not just Israelites misbehaving. No, these are human beings involved in a gross act of rebellion against God. We are confronted here with a very graphical and sobering truth about our race, humankind, our kind, who is doing this. On one hand, we shouldn't be surprised, for we have already seen such rebellion in the garden in Genesis 3. But there is something very stark about this incident. It is in your face. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is how badly humans have treated and is still treating our faithful, loving Creator. The Israelites felt the presence, the absence of God's representative Moses, and so they felt the absence of God. What did they do? Well, in their unrighteousness and folly, they suppressed the revealed truth 
that have been revealed to them by God and they have known about God and they exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image. Instead of worshipping God as he has revealed himself, they replace him with a humanly conceived notion and representation. And friends, scripture, specifically I'm thinking about Romans 1 here, tells us that this tendency is true of all of us, all of us as human beings. We easily and quickly distrust, displace, and replace God, despite all that he has done for us. And friends, wouldn't that be your experience and my experience of the world and of ourselves? So now think about it. What's the situation that we are in? Out of all the human beings on the face of this earth, God has given this bunch, the Israelites, a special place. God chose them, God redeemed them, and God loved them. And yet, this group of our race could not fulfill even the most basic aspect of the mutually agreed covenant. If there is no hope for them, this group, who has been so privileged among all of us, could there be any hope for the rest of us? If such an extent of love and kindness to God could not overcome the rebellious heart, what could? So at this point of the story, we are just left hanging in despair as a race. Let's take a look now what is God's response to Israel's gross rebellion. Let's continue in verse 7. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down to your people. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. There is no surprise here at all. Israel blew it, she screwed up, and now she's in deep, deep trouble. She broke the covenant, she breached the relationship. Now God is distancing himself. He's no longer calling them my people as we have sinned, but now your people. God is angry, very angry. Why shouldn't he? Wouldn't you be angry? And now God plans to completely wipe them out. For the openly blatant and stiff-necked nature just makes it impossible to continue in this covenantal relationship. Friends, do you have such an image of God? A God who do get very, very angry. If you don't, you should. For this is a God whom we are witnessing here in the Bible. A God who could say, Let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. This is what we see. You see, God is a personal God. 
a personal being. He's a relational God, a God who loves sacrificially, who does, who does grief over sin and grief over bad relationship. He is not an icy cold intergalactic cube. No, he is a personal being, personal relational being. So given the context of what we have seen, given what Israel has done, can we not feel for God here? God's reaction is absolutely justifiable, don't you think? But there is a hint of hope for Israel. God told Moses to leave him alone so he can destroy Israel. But what if God was not left alone? What if God was not left alone? Which was exactly what Moses did. Take a look in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." Basically, Moses was horrified here by God's announcement to destroy his people. So he pleaded with God for them. He appealed to God's promises to their forefathers. He appealed to God's reputation among the nations. At this point, we, re- we need to remember this. That is, given what Israel has done, God is under no obligation to accept Moses' appeal. God would have been entirely within his rights to walk away from this covenant with Israel. So what happens next shows us something very deep and very profound about who God is. Take a look at verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster. And he has spoken of bringing on his, that he has spoken of bringing on his people. God acting acted in surprising and overwhelming grace here, giving to the people what they do not deserve. This does not mean that the guilt of the people is swept under carpet. No, in time it will be punished. But Israel's existence is not threatened anymore. God relented. Do not underestimate or overlook the extent and the degree and the depth of God's grace here. You might have thought, well, Moses was more patient to God compared to God. He was the one who is imploring God to turn away from his burning anger, isn't it? But when Moses himself went down from the mountain and heard and saw what Israelites were doing, as God had said, what did he do? Take a look at verse 17. 
When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It is not the sound of shouting of victory for victory, or the sound of a cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the golden saw the calf and the dancing, Moses anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that he had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Moses himself was so appalled and so revolted that upon actually seeing the people's gross sin, he smashed the tablets. He could not follow and did not follow his own advice. Basically, he's saying, if you are not prepared to worship Yahweh and obey his law, you don't deserve to have it. The covenant is over. It is void. It seems now Moses understood the depth of people's sin against God and therefore realized just how rightful God was to destroy Israel. And so, although Moses was the one who led the appeal for Israel's future, he also had a leading hand in executing the judgment. Take a look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor and the sons of levi did according to the word of moses and the day about 3000 men 3000 men of the people fell notice just how quick moses was in executing judgment right after he witnessed for himself the gross sin. Compared to Moses, God, on the other hand, was actually slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It tells us something about how quick man is and how slow God is in revenge. Do you now begin to see something about God's character in this story, in this incident? For this is not just a story, it is an insight into God's very nature, who He is. Upon realizing the gravity of Israel's sin, Moses now went to see God again. Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses seems to sense that human sin might, be, might need to be atoned for by substitutionary death of another human being. He therefore offered himself in their place. 
And what was God's response? Verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now, go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit the sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, and the one, the one that Aaron made. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up, with, go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. In this final section that we'll be looking at this morning, we will see something more about the character of God. The story basically continues with attention. It seems as though things have patched up between God and Israel, apparently. He tells them to leave this place and head towards the promised land, the land of milk and honey. The angel will go before them and drive out their enemies. All seems to be good and well. But there is a problem. Verse 3. God announces that he himself will not go with them. This is a big thing. Very disastrous. Why? You see, the whole purpose of the book of Exodus that we have seen all this while was for God and his people to be together. To be together. God's presence with them was meant to be firmly established in the detailed tabernacle that we saw last week. So now, with God saying, go ahead without me, the last 31 chapters is undone. This is not a mere setback, but basically the end of the road. And what was the reason for this? Basically, they are stiff-necked, stubborn, sinful people, unable to live up to the requirements of the covenantal relationship they share with God. And God is a just God that we have sinned. Whoever sinned against him, he said, he will blot them out of the book. For he is just. So how can a just God coexist with stiff-necked sinful people? He can't. They will one day sin and he will one day consume them. The God of Exodus, the God of the Bible, is a completely just God. God of justice. 
His wrath burns and must burn against evil. And this is why I said in the beginning, Israel is in deep trouble, well-deserved, self-inflicted trouble. And there's nothing that Israel could do to get out of the trouble. But friends, through this golden calf incident, these chapters have revealed to us something else about God. Something profoundly deep about who He is on the inside. God is gracious. And God is merciful. Earlier we saw He had every right to utterly destroy Israel and leave the covenant that He has just established. But He didn't. God acted in surprisingly, overwhelmingly grace giving to the people what they do not deserve. And friends, this is simply who God is by nature. This is what He is made of, His character, merciful and gracious. So let me end by saying this. This is what Christians believe and rejoice about. Mankind have sinned against God, all of us. We deserve the full wrath of God to burn hot against us. No excuse. For God is just. Sins must be punished. Every single sin. But thankfully, not luckily, but thankfully, God is a just and merciful and gracious God. Else, mankind would have been in deep, deep trouble. On the cross of Calvary, in the death of Jesus Christ, God's wrath and God's mercy meets. Sin has to be punished. Wrath has to be shown. There, the sinless Jesus took the place of sinful man. God's wrath was absorbed by Jesus. In his mercy, through the death of Jesus, sinful man can now be reconciled to him so that those who believe in him might be righteous before God by faith. And we do not need and do not have to face the punishment that is due to them, due to us. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who is personal, relational, a God of character, above all, Father, we want to thank you this morning that in and of yourself, by your very nature, you are a gracious, a compassionate, slow to anger, merciful God. That is simply who you are. And we thank you that it's because of your grace and your sure mercy towards us that we who have wronged you we who have sinned against you, being rebellious against you, can now find salvation in Christ. Christ took the wrath that we deserve, even when he lived the perfect life that we did not live. And thank you that by his death, we can now be reconciled to you. So guard our hearts, Father, by your Holy Spirit, that we will be those who look to the cross daily, 
and be thankful for this life that Christ has purchased for us by his blood. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.